The gospel is not about us, it's about God. We have to get that straight right from the beginning. We have to realize that as much as it is good news for us, that Jesus saw us lost in our sin, came to the cross, paid the price for us, rose from the dead, offering us new life and the sealing of the Holy Spirit, all of that is such amazing news for us, it would be easy for us to somehow think that really we're the point of all of this. We're not the point of all of this. The gospel is not about us, it's about God. We are the object of the gospel, he is the subject of the gospel, right? So um, it's about his love, it's about his forgiveness, it's about his grace, it's about his kindness, it's about his work, and all of it is for his glory. That's what the gospel is about. And here in Romans, we've had to face the bad news about our own sin and what it does and how it separates us from God. And, and we talked a lot about sin in the early weeks of this series. And I want to remind us though, sin is not bad because it somehow breaks some arbitrary rule. Sin is bad because it dishonors God and God is the point. And so if we get that straight, we're going to understand a lot better what God has to tell us. At the heart of every sinful act is a little bitty person who thinks they can be God in this moment. Every time I decide to say yes to my own fleshly desires and no to God's will for my life, I'm essentially saying, hey God, I got this one. I, I think I'm better prepared to handle this than you are. I think my way is better than your way. And so every time I do that, I am playing a little God and the Lord just shakes his head. Um, that is the very thing that has been getting people in trouble from the beginning. In fact, even before there was people, Lucifer got kicked out of heaven for this very thing, along with a third of the angels trying to be his own God. Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden for this very thing, resulting in their being cast out of the garden, not to mention the whole curse upon mankind that all of us now are born with a sin nature that we've inherited through our forefathers. So that's the problem with sin. It dishonors God. It takes God and, and tries to wrestle him off of his throne and it says, I can do this better than you. And by the same token, now that we've dealt with the bad news, the good news of the gospel is all about glorifying God. If sin is all about tearing God down, then, then um, worship is all about glorifying God. Our lives are all about glorifying God. Um, God's patience his uh, kindness, God's uh, forbearance, the, the sending of his only son to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins and then raise from the dead and defeat death on our behalf. It's all for the ultimate purpose of his glory. Everything's created for his glory and we have to get that right because if we don't understand this, it leaves us open to all kinds of false and heretical teaching, all kinds of wrong ideas that are going to lead us astray and leave us disappointed with this version of God that we've created in our own minds that doesn't match the actual God. 
And so we got to get this straight. Let me give you an example of where this can lead us if we don't get this straight. You've probably heard this term before, the the so-called prosperity gospel. Very, very popular uh, form of teaching these days, especially among televangelists. This idea that somehow everything is about you and that uh, it's about your blessings and your happiness and that this is your chance to live your best life now and your best life is supposed to be now and therefore you should be healthy and wealthy and prosperous in every possible way and that God invited you into relationship with him so he could make you prosperous, heal your sicknesses, fill your bank with money, and take away all of your troubles. And that's basically the teaching that, that these certain preachers are twisting the scripture to say this is God's will for you. And you may chuckle at that, especially if you've been for any, whether it's here or somewhere else, you've been a part of a good Bible teaching church and you know that God's word teaches something very different than that. But, but I'm telling you, I've traveled around the globe and I've been in so many countries and so many cities and so many places where poverty reigns and because poverty reigns it's easy to sell people this idea that if you will just join our movement then your poverty will go away and we miss the point that the gospel is not about you and this moment All the blessings that come to you in this moment are the side effects of the gospel. The gospel is about him and his glory. So we got to get away from this view that says, you know, God is our servant who exists to wait on us. God is our genie in a bottle who just is there to grant us our wishes. Nothing can be further from the truth. The glory of God is the point of all all of the creation. His glory is the point and the ultimate purpose of your life. It's the ultimate purpose of my life. Your life is not about you. Sorry. It's all about him. Until we understand this, we're never really going to understand the gospel. And this journey through the gospel according to Romans has now led us to the end of Romans chapter 8, where Paul gives us some truth. If you've got your Bibles, you're going to want to go to Romans chapter 8, because in Romans chapter 8, at the end, Paul begins to give us some truth that is going to be very, very hard to understand unless and until we understand that the whole thing is about God and His glory. So that's our foundation for today. With all of that as a foundation for our understanding, we're going to put our thinking caps on. I I told you a couple weeks ago that uh, these last two or three uh, messages in this series are going to be more teachy than preachy. Uh, They're going to be the kinds of things where you're going to have to actually ponder some ideas and and think about some things and maybe go home this week and look up some other verses in your Bible and get a sense of a deeper teaching because we're now swimming in the deep waters of Romans chapter 8. And so we're going to have to think today Uh, and we're going to have to grapple with what is, in my view, um, the most joyful, the most glorious, the most wonderful, the most encouraging truth in all of scripture. 
And it's here at the end of Romans 8. I told somebody today, they said, how are you doing today? And I just smiled and said, I am doing great because months ago when I said, I wanna preach a series on the gospel according to the book of Romans, the whole point was to get to these verses in chapter eight. So, you know, put your seatbelts on, guys, because I am ready to rock today. I am excited about God's word and what it teaches us. And so let's go to Romans chapter eight, and uh, we're gonna do a little bit by way of review. I want you to go back to where we were last week. Look at verse 28, that famous verse that we all love so much, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who, call, who are called according to his purpose. And last week we talked about this a lot. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but I want to remind you that this verse is not one of those little magic pixie dust verses that says everything that you want is gonna go the way that you want it to go. It says, however, that though there will be difficult things in your life, and though there will be good things in your life, though there will be pleasant things in your life, and though there will be painful things in your life, God is always at work in the life of his children to like shape us and mold us by using those things to make us who he wants us to be, to do good for us. And we said last week, what is that good? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What is this good that God causes all things to work together for? It is the shaping and molding and conforming of us to the image of his son so that he will be the firstborn among many brethren. The good that God is doing in you is his sanctification. He's doing that in you if you're a Christian. But even that is not the ultimate good of the work that God is doing that is being spoken of here in Romans 8.28. There's something even, even deeper than that. Look again at the second half of verse 29. Speaking of his son Jesus, it says, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Amen. Now, that word firstborn, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Like, uh, the firstborn in common vernacular means the first child born into a family, right? That's not what it means here. And let me tell you why that's true. Um, in Hebrew culture, the, the idea was that there was going to be one of the children who would be the one who would take on the responsibility of leading the clan when the father died, and that he would be the one that gets the inheritance. He would be the one who gets the land. He would be the one who gets all of the blessings to go with the responsibility of becoming the patriarch of the family. And that usually went to the son who was born first. But there are many occasions in which the son who was born first was not worthy of that. And so another son would be named the firstborn, even though he wasn't born first. So when it talks about being the firstborn, it is not talking about Jesus being born first, because after all, Jesus wasn't born first. There were billions of people born before Jesus was born. He existed first, but he was not born first right? That's not what it means. The term firstborn is a title of preeminence. It refers to his uh, position. 
and his glory and his preeminence. And so it's not about birth order, it's about honor. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Isaac is not the first son born to Abraham. Ishmael is, but Isaac is the firstborn. Uh, and it would just keep on that line. Jacob is not the first child born to Isaac. Esau was, but Jacob becomes the firstborn. Joseph is not the firstborn to Jacob. In fact, he's down and last in line. He, he's like 11th out of 12 sons. And yet Joseph inherits the position of patriarch of the family and becomes the firstborn. So the idea of being firstborn does not mean you were born first. It means you are in the position of honor and glory and reputation and leadership and responsibility. So when it says that he causes all things to work together for good, for he's at work in our lives so that he can do good by conforming us to the image of his son, that he, the son, might be the firstborn or the most exalted or the most glorified or the most honored among everyone. That's the idea. And the scripture talks about this in multiple places, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess both on earth and in heaven and under the earth to the glory of God. Jesus is the preeminent one, and that's the idea. So what does all this have to do with the gospel, pastor? Are you just taking us on a rabbit trail because this is interesting to you? Yes, I do that. But it actually has something to do with the gospel. See, God is at work in your life when it says he causes all things to work together for good. God is at work in your life to make you more like Christ. For what ultimate purpose? That Jesus would be preeminent among us all. That Jesus would be honored. That Jesus would be glorified. It's all about his glory. Yes, it affects us. Yes, we are invited to be recipients of God's amazing gifts. We are, we are offered adoption as sons and daughters of the king. By his grace, we become children of God and joint heirs with Jesus. But he is the firstborn among many brethren. He's in the place of greatest honor and authority and glory. One day, Christian, you will stand before God and you will be given a crown. And do you know what you're gonna do with that crown? You're gonna take it off and throw it at the feet of Jesus who is the firstborn, the preeminent one, the one who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And I know I'm kicking this horse pretty hard, but if we don't get this straight, the following verses are going to confuse us and lead us astray. It is not about you, it's all about him. I feel like I should have got a t-shirt printed up that just says, it's all about him. If you leave here not knowing anything else, I hope you leave here today knowing it's all about him. Say it with me. It's all about him. Now say it like you mean it. It's all about him. And, and I know that seems like a, a you know, second grade thing to do. Who made us repeat this thing? You know why? Because when you hear it, you remember it so well. When you speak it and hear it, you remember it at least twice as well. And if you speak it, hear it, and write it down, you'll remember it even better. And if you speak it, hear it, write it down, and then tell somebody about it, it will be stuck in your heart forever. 
It's all about him. And until we get that straight, we're not getting anything straight. It's all about him. And the more we keep all that in mind, the better we can grasp what we're about to deal with in the rest of Romans. Now, um, I want you, I'm going to direct you now, we're going to start again in verse 29, and I'm going to read the next couple of verses, and Garrett, will you do me a favor, will you bring that whiteboard up here while I'm doing this? Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, these verses, thanks, Garrett, these verses are a source of confusion to many people. A lot of people have argued and debated about what these verses mean. And I think one of the things that throws us off track in understanding what he's saying in these verses is that we forget it's all about him. We think we're the center of our own universe. We think it's all about us. And then we read these verses through those eyes and we shrug our shoulders and goes, what what in the world could this possibly mean? But I I wanna um, help you. Uh, and I, I want to just sort of illustrate this visually for you, okay? Now, there was a day, I'm looking around the room, some of you, I was talking to somebody today who's, uh, who's here who's about to celebrate her 97th birthday, and yep, and, uh, and she said to me, do you think I'm the oldest in the church? And I said, well, Jim is 119, but everybody else, I think you have them beat, so, so however old you might be, there was a point in time where your timeline of your life began. And when we think of a human life, we think in terms of a timeline. And uh, I won't make you tell us the year, but you could write a year right here at the beginning, and that's your birth year, and it goes on, and we don't know where it's going to end exactly, but for now, we're right here. That's the timeline that represents your life, okay? Now, here's the thing. For us, life is a timeline, and events unfold from left to right, one at a time. So, there's a point in which you are born, there's maybe a point in which you, uh, I don't know, you, you go to kindergarten. There's a point over here where you graduate high school. There's, there's maybe a point where you uh, get married. There, there's a point where you have children. Uh, there's a point where you retire maybe. There's a, there's a point where you have grandchildren. Uh, there's a point where you say, man, am I tired? And you sleep all the time. Like, and these are all points on the timeline of your life, Right? That's the way we think about this. That's the only way we know how to think about this because we were created for time. We live in time. We've never been to the other side. We don't know much about eternity. We think about eternity and we scratch our heads and go, I, don't, I can't quite wrap my mind around it because to us, it's all about a timeline, right? So my life is a timeline and I think of it that way. It all happens in an orderly fashion. It happens uh, in the context of time. But here's the thing. God exists outside of time. Time has no effect on God. Time has no impact on God. Now, if you're like me, you get up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, man, time is having an impact on me. (laughs) 
But time has no impact on God. And God exists outside of time. He's not bound by time. He is at once the one who was and is and is to come as we sang in our worship songs today. He reveals himself to Moses and what does he say his name is? Come on. I am. He says his name is I am. Not I was, not I will be, not maybe I will. His name is I am. It was I am yesterday, it was I am today, and it will be I am tomorrow and forevermore. He is in the perpetual now. That's God's character. It's his nature. He exists outside of time. And so he does not change. The the theologians use the term immutable. God is immutable. He does not change. I don't know if you ever let yourself think about that. What does that mean? Well, it means he doesn't age. It, it, It means he does not grow. It means he does not learn. God doesn't add anything to who he is. So when you and I sit down to pray and we say, Lord, let me tell you about my day, that's an exercise for you, not him. He's not learning anything, right? Because to learn is to change. He's all-knowing. He's immutable. He's all-powerful. So he doesn't change. So nobody and nothing can stop him from what he sets out to do. He doesn't have to ask the question, okay, I've made this promise, but what if? God never lives in fear of a what if. Wouldn't you like that? Man, God never lives in fear of a what if because he lives outside of time and that's why God can't be thwarted. He is all powerful. So nobody and nothing can stop him from completing what he starts. So when he promises that something will be done, it is already done. We're just waiting for it to roll out on our timeline. But if God's promised something, it's already done. So let's think about these verses in terms of our experience of time and God's experience of time, right? So there, here again, verses 29 and 30, we have a list of words. It says, for those whom he foreknew. Let's start with that word, foreknew. What does foreknew mean? It, it means to know before, okay? Aren't you glad you came to this English class? It means that he knew something before. Now, some people like to think of this as God already knowing in advance, and therefore he's aware of what's going to happen, but that's not what the word foreknew means. It doesn't say what he foreknew. It says whom he foreknew. It's a relational foreknowledge, not a factual foreknowledge. So this is not an issue of God sitting back and looking and going, well, I can see beyond time and I know that this is gonna happen one day by his choice in his life and therefore I know it. No, God is saying, before you were, I knew you. It's mind boggling. How does that happen? So where does this go on our timeline? Foreknew is over here. It's before the timeline begins. God knew me before I was. He knew me before I existed. How is that possible? Because he's God. He's outside of time. 
He determined my existence before the foundation of the world, the scripture says. And what's more, he chose to love me before the universe even existed. I want you to just leave a finger in Romans 9 and turn a few books to the right to Ephesians. We've been bouncing back and forth to Ephesians in this series. And I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Same author, Paul, he's writing to a different group of Christians, the church at Ephesus, and uh, he's trying to get across the same idea, but he says it in a very different way here in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, we're going to read, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption." Through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Do you notice that those verbs are in the past tense? The blessed, past tense. Chose, past tense. Predestined, past tense. Uh, 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 one more, lavished, past tense. These are things that God has already determined. And yet, have you yet made it to heaven? No. Have you yet experienced the full inheritance of a child of God? No. And yet the scripture says that he has already given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, that we are already recipients. How can that be? I'm here in the timeline. That happens way over here somewhere. How can that be? It's because of who God is. He is outside of time, and when God puts something in motion, there is nobody and nothing that can stop it. So this is, we'll put an F over here, this is whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew, the verse says, he also predestined. So we'll put a little P there. This is predestination. You go, oh, that's one of those, I know people argue about that one. I don't know, I'm not so sure about that one. Listen, you may uh, side with one theologian one way or another theologian another way. There's admittedly good arguments on every side of the big predestination question, but can we all humble ourselves enough to admit that this is probably beyond our pay grade? That this is beyond our understanding? And so it clearly says that whom, whom, not what, but whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What does predestined mean? It means he destined it in advance. God predetermined. And and then some of you are getting a little uncomfortable. You know, this guy's starting to sound like one of them Calvinists. I, I, I don't really care what Calvin says. I care what the word of God says. The word of God says that whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He determined in advance, and the other verses we just read said that happened before the foundation of the world, so it happens before the beginning of your timeline. Now, this is important. It's your salvation story, so stay awake. This matters. 
That means just what it says. God determined our spiritual destiny before we were even conceived. You say, does that mean I don't have a free will? Oh, no, you obviously have a free will. Look how much you sin. <laughs> the, the fact that God foreknows and predestines does not mean we don't have a free will. But guys, our free will, we're so different than God. Our free will is not unlimited. So I have strength. I have the strength to lift up this pen. Are you proud of me? I have that strength. I don't have the strength to lift up this building. Doesn't mean I don't have strength, but my strength is not unlimited. You and I have free will, but that free will is not unlimited. You cannot just decide right now that you're going to become a bird and then you fly away. You don't have unlimited free will. You clearly have a lot of free will. God clearly gives us a ton of freedom, otherwise we wouldn't sin so much. But there is this strange, beyond human understanding balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. God has given us tremendous amounts of free will, but he hasn't given us all and complete power and control. So we have foreknowledge and we have predestination. And that is good news because you and I are not all powerful. We are not fully faithful and we are certainly not unchangeable. So if any of this depends upon my faithfulness or my wisdom or my strength or my goodness or my religiosity or whatever, I'm in terrible jeopardy with my salvation if it depends on me. But I, I heard a preacher once say, it's not about you. It's all about yes. him, right? So if any of this depended on my faithfulness, I'd be in trouble. But since our salvation is the work of God, we can be confident that God has already completed the good work of salvation that he began in us. We haven't even got to the front of the timeline yet. But we can be confident of that much because your salvation does not depend upon you. Sorry if you're real proud of yourself for finding Jesus. But the word of God says your salvation doesn't depend upon you, it depends upon him. That no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. And that we cannot believe unless he gives us the faith to believe. So it all depends upon him. So since our salvation is the work of God, we can be confident that God has already completed the good work that he began on in us. We're just waiting for it to roll out across our timelines. It depends on God. That's what it means to say that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. But there's still more. Whom he predestined, he called. Now, that happens on everybody's timeline, a different place. Um, let's just put it there. This is called. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he also called. And, and let me help you understand that. If you're a Christian today, it's not just because he foreknew and predestined you. It's because at a certain point in time, God called you to himself. No one comes to me and left the father, calls him, draws him, brings him, right? There's a point of calling that takes place. And that's how you came to him, is that he called you. It was his gift to you, not something you created, not something you earned, not something you 
mustered up from deep inside something he did in your heart. And some of us can remember the exact moment of that calling in our response. Some of us can picture the place we were, the time, the date. We know everything about the moment that we really, God gave us the gift of faith to believe and we understood truth and we surrendered our life to Jesus Christ. We know all that. Others of us go, yeah, it's a little foggier for me than that. Um, I, I, it was just a process of me growing into a place where I put my complete trust in God. I don't know exactly when that happened, but either way, whether you remember the details or not, if you're a Christian today, it's because at some point in your timeline, God called you to a saving relationship with him and gave you the faith to respond to that call. We saw this a few weeks ago. It's Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. It says, by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, that faith not of yourselves, but it is the free gift of God, not by works lest anyone should boast. Even the faith to believe is a gift of God. We're dependent upon him. So whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he also called. But there's still more to this story. Whom he called, he also justified. And just for the sake of being able to see it well, I'm gonna just put the line right next to it. At the moment that you respond to the call of Jesus and surrender your life to the lordship of Christ in faith, you are justified. If you don't know what justified means, go back. I talked about it in four of the last eight sermons. Justification means you've been, you've been legally declared not guilty. Jesus paid your price. You've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And we've already talked about this, but that's what it means just by way of review. It's a legal process. Although you're technically guilty of your sin, you're absolved of that guilt and you have a new legal standing, not according to your own goodness, but according to the perfection of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. yeah, good, good, good news. When you're justified, your debt is erased. When you're justified, you're made a new person in Christ. We've been talking about this for weeks. When you're justified, you're born again. And all of this is unfolding on the course of your timeline, right? That's how you're experiencing it. If you're like me, I can talk to you about the years before I heard his call and was justified. I remember those days, not fondly, but I remember those days. And, and there, it unrolled on my timeline to a place where I was called and justified according to God's word. But there's even more than that. And this is the one that blows my mind the most. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, the verse says, he glorified. Here's the problem with that. It's beyond the timeline. I, I don't know about you, but um, I got up this morning and I looked in the mirror and I thought, I am not yet glorified. Glorification is what happens the other side of this life. 
Glorification is what happens when you arrive in heaven and stand in the presence of God and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Glorification is what happens when, as the scripture says, he makes you like him. When all of your sin is erased, all the pull of the flesh is erased, all, all death, all pain, all suffering, all sorrow, every tear, it's all gone. That's glorification. You're going to become someone that is the perfect version of who God created you to be. That's coming, but not on your timeline. It's coming way down here somewhere. And, you know, I'm looking forward to it, but I kind of hope there's still some timeline left. But the glorification happens in the future. And here's my problem. It's in the same past tense. Whom he foreknew, past tense, he predestined, past tense. Whom he predestined, he called, past tense. Whom he called, he justified, past tense. If you're a Christian, you have no problem. that All that happened for you already. It, it makes sense to be in the past. But how is glorification in the past? Because God is God, and he cannot be thwarted. So what has been unrolling in your life and you've been experiencing it as your experience of salvation is something God determined long before he even made you. And it's 100% the work of God. You have already been glorified. You're just waiting for the day when you experience it. But there's nothing, nothing that can stop it because God is all-powerful. God is immutable. God is faithful. God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. And it's not about you. It's all about yeah. him. All of this stuff is already done because God is God and he cannot change. For me, it unrolls over time. For God, it's one event. It is an act of his will. It's called salvation. His work predates me. His work will continue long after I've left this world. Why? Because the whole thing is his work and not mine, and the gospel is all about him. And just in case you still don't get it, just in case you're feeling a little nervous about this whole thing, um, God closes out Romans chapter 8 with the most hopeful and encouraging words I can ever imagine reading. Uh, pick it up in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? right? Because he's God, because he's all-powerful, because he's immutable, because he's faithful. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's just made the argument that your salvation doesn't depend on the fact that you are for God. It depends on the fact that God is for you. What an incredible truth. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, this is an example of how God is for us, but delivered him over for us all, how will, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's glorification. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. If I justified myself, you could bring a charge against me. But if God is the one who says not guilty, then the answer is not 
guilty. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The Son of God is assuring your salvation. The Son of God is praying for you even right now. The Spirit has sealed your salvation. All of this is done by God. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? We're in verse 35. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That verse 36 is just quoting the Old Testament going, you know what? Um, This is kind of hard to believe. You know why? Because the people of God suffer. You don't get a free pass. You don't get to just have a life of ease. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his own cross and daily follow me. There's a a, a great cost to walking with Jesus. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. It is sometimes painful. And the psalmist said, you know what? We're like sheep to be led to slaughter. That's not great. Verse 37, but... In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We don't overwhelmingly conquer by our great might, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He conquers on our behalf. And here we go. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the gospel. This is the good news. God determined it. God accomplished it. And God will complete it. If you were in Christ, there is absolutely nothing that can come between you and the love of God. Nothing. He proved that by sending his own son to pay your price, to make you his child despite all of your sin. And nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I ask you, is there any news in the world that's better than that? So what's the appropriate response? We, we've, we've spent weeks on this. We've looked at the bad news and the good news. We've seen what God has done for us. And now we see how, how eternal his work is and how sure his work is in us. And that nothing could ever, ever, ever under any circumstances separate us from him. And we understand all that. What is the appropriate response to this incredibly good news? It's complete trust. It, it is that we would that we would lay our lives on the altar and become a living sacrifice, as it says in Romans chapter 12. That we would would live a life of complete surrender to him, a life that is defined not by an hour a week in which we focus on him and worship him, but a life that is defined as an act of worship, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. 
And that forces us to just come up short and go, oh, is that how my life is defined? Is that what defines me? Is that what controls my thoughts? Is that what guides my behavior? Is that how I think of myself? Is that what chases away my anxiety and helps me to live in hope? Or if I'm honest, is that just a theological platitude that's for others to think about that doesn't make a daily difference in my life? I'm here to tell you guys the gospel is good news because it makes a daily difference in your life right now and for all of eternity because whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He's gotcha. He's gotcha. You're in his hands. You think you're in good hands with Allstate? (laughs) (laughs) What defines your life? Is it that kind of a relationship with that kind of a loving God? Because it can be. It can be. There's no time like the present to finally, metaphorically fall to your knees, lift up your hands and go, okay, you're going to be God and I'm going to follow you. If you've never done that before in your life, I would say today's the day. And, and, and even if you've done that, but you found yourself wandering and struggling and losing sight of these truths and you've, you've been enriched by the gospel, the good news, and you're like, oh yeah, that's what my life is about. Today is the day to turn and get back on the path of walking with God and experience his goodness moment by moment, day by day in your life because he's the only one you can count on. Isn't God good? Let's all stand together and we'll pray. Sorry, I told you I was going to get worked up. Heavenly Father, on this day, we have been um, confronted with the most spectacularly beautiful truth in your word, that you love us so much. You sent your only son to pay the price for our sin. And that as you give us the faith to believe, we can be justified and made new in you. And therefore, our glorification is guaranteed because no one can thwart you and nothing comes between you and us. Thank you, God. May we live in the peace of that truth as we go from this place. And may you have complete reign over every aspect of our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go and walk in the truth.